Our second Bible reading this morning is John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you no longer are going to see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he is telling us? A little while and you are not going to see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you are not going to see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one is going to take your joy away from you. And on that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not saying to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, See, now you are speaking plainly and are not using any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and that you have no need for anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus replied to them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. Jeremiah says to God, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Father, we pray that, like Jeremiah, we would have an appetite for your words. Would they come to us now by your Spirit? 
And would they be our joy and our heart's delight? We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. Those are the words of Richard Vermbrandt, a Romanian Christian imprisoned for a total of 14 years during the time when Romania was under communist rule after the Second World War. Alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. Richard Vermbrandt's testimony isn't unique. Christians down the ages have experienced joy even in the midst of their suffering. As early as Acts chapter 5, we're told that after the apostles had been flogged, they went on their way rejoicing. Stories like those show us that for Christians, our joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. Our joy doesn't depend on physical comfort or career success or romantic fulfillment or financial security or the health of our family. Joy for the Christian has another source. And our passage today reveals where it comes from. Please look down to verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one is going to take your joy away from you. The big idea of that verse is just as true for Christians now as it was for the 11 disciples listening to Jesus. The big idea of verse 22 is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he lives, we can be joyful with a joy that no one can take away from us. Speaking personally, I want to have more of this joy that comes from knowing the risen Lord Jesus. And I expect you also want more of this joy. God willing, today's Bible passage will be our guide. It's a long passage and we're going to break it down by looking at the three different time periods that Jesus highlights in the passage. In verse 16, Jesus talks about two little whiles. After the first little while, something will happen. Then after the second little while, something else will happen. Then there's a third time period introduced in verse 25, where Jesus says, an hour is coming. So for the rest of the sermon, we'll go from one time period to the next. Our heading for the first time period is after the first little while. After the first little while. In verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you are no longer going to see me. That's what will happen after the first little while. The disciples will no longer see Jesus. Jesus has been talking about his upcoming departure throughout the whole of that evening. The disciples have been listening. At the end of verse 17, they actually quote something that Jesus said earlier on. They've been listening, but they haven't understood. They say at the end of verse 18, we do not know what he is talking about. They're like a patient who hears a disturbing diagnosis and then goes into denial. 
saying things to their doctor like, are are you sure? Or that can't be right. Or like the disciples, I don't know what you're talking about. The disciples' refusal to accept what Jesus is telling them shows how hard it was for them even to think about being separated from Jesus, their master. Jesus is aware of their difficulty and he responds to it with some extra detail about this upcoming time period when the disciples will no longer see him. In verse 20, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. Then in verse 21, Jesus compares the grief the disciples will feel to the anguish of a woman in childbirth. That anguish is about to grip the disciples. It's coming after only a little while. And when it comes, they won't handle it well. We know that because Jesus says in verse 32, they'll be scattered, each returning to his own home, and they'll leave him alone. They'll abandon him. In Jesus' prediction in verse 32 was accurate. In Mark's gospel, we're told that after Jesus' arrest, everyone deserted him and fled. Earlier I said this passage would serve as our guide to joy, but so far all we've encountered in this first time period has been denial and desertion. Where's the joy? Well, it's important to notice how bad things are to begin with because it shows that the joy when it comes isn't dependent on the disciples' performance. It's not dependent on the disciples proving themselves to be admirable servants of Jesus. They are faithless. And yet, that sin doesn't bar them from the coming joy. That's something you and I need to hear if we want to experience the joy this passage is talking about. So let's press on with some more of the gloom. We'll find it's very relevant to anyone wanting to transition from despair to joy. The failure of faith demonstrated by the disciples is understandable, and yet it is sinful. In verse 33, Jesus gives them advance information so that they might get through the coming time period with peace. But they don't listen properly. They don't listen with faith, and so they don't have peace. On top of that, in verses 23 and 24, Jesus prepares the disciples for his absence by telling them that they can pray directly to the Father. They can ask him for anything in Jesus' name, and he'll give it to them. The disciples could have used that access to God they didn't. We know from the other Gospels that when Jesus tells the disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane later that night, they sleep instead. The disciples' lack of faith during this upcoming time period is sinful. It's disappointing. It's unimpressive. And yet, Their dishonourable behaviour 
doesn't torpedo their future joy. As we'll see when we get to the next time period, Jesus is going to restore them. He says at the end of verse 20, your grief will be turned into joy. Now that restoration will only be possible because of the events that are about to happen, the events that will take Jesus away from the disciples. It's only because of his arrest, crucifixion and death that he could forgive and restore the disciples. Jesus had to die on the cross to deal with the problem of our wrongdoing, or in biblical language, to make atonement for our sin. God is a holy judge. He can't say, let's just pretend this sin never happened. No, he has to deal with sin justly. And that's why he sent his son into our world. As we heard earlier in those words of comfort from 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did that by dying on the cross, where he bore our sin and suffered God's punishment for it. At the end of verse 32, Jesus says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Yes, the Father was with him throughout the coming trials, but as Bible scholars point out in their comments on that verse, verse 32, there was a window of time when the Father wasn't with Jesus in that way. As he hung on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus exchanged the Father's love for the Father's wrath, and he did it for us. In a moment, we'll see the disciples restored to joyful fellowship with Jesus. And that restoration was only possible because of the cross. Perhaps today you are particularly conscious of a grievous sin in your life. You can't quite believe you did it. You're horrified by your faithlessness, your lack of devotion to Jesus. You consider yourself a, a lowlife. You wonder how you can even dare call yourself a Christian. If that's you, there is rich encouragement for you in this Bible passage. The disciples abandoned Jesus, and yet we're about to see them restored to joyful fellowship with him. They did not earn that joy through their own moral performance. They were faithless. Instead, they received that joy, that joyful restoration, because it was lovingly paid for by Jesus at the cross. Let's now press on to the next time period foreseen by Jesus in this passage. We've already glanced ahead to the disciples' joyful restoration, but let's now look at it more closely. The heading for the next section of the sermon is, After Another Little While. After another little while, Jesus speaks of two little whiles in verse 16. The first leads up to Jesus' arrest and death, the time period we've just been thinking about, when the disciples abandon Jesus and don't see him anymore. And then there's another little while, after which the disciples will see Jesus again. 
And that second little while began when Jesus was buried on the first Good Friday, then went through the whole of that Saturday and on into Sunday. But on that third day, the first Easter Sunday, Jesus was raised from the grave. Just as he promises at the end of verse 16, his disciples did indeed see him. Just as he promises at the end of verse 20, their grief was turned into joy. Six weeks from now, it will be Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, the most joyful day in the church calendar. There are Sundays when it's right to sing songs with an element of sadness. Our first hymn today, Be Still My Soul, has an element of sadness to it. But on Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, all the songs will be joyful. I know that already, even though we haven't chosen them yet, because every Resurrection Day song is joyful. Thine be the glory. I know that my Redeemer lives. Christ the Lord is risen today. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. All of them are joyful. One of my favourite Easter songs is See What a Morning, a recent song by Stuart Townend and Keith Getty. It captures the shift from grief to joy that Jesus speaks of at the end of verse 20. See what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem, folded the grave clothes, tomb filled with light, as the angels announce, Christ is risen. The dawning of hope in Jerusalem. The disciples had lost all hope. They'd seen Jesus die on a cross, the Roman Empire's most brutal form of execution. After he'd breathed his last, the disciples had seen a soldier plunge a spear into Jesus' side. Blood and water spurted out the separated fluids of a dead man. Surely that was it. Surely that was the end. And then on Sunday, Mary Magdalene arrives in the disciples' doorway with her story about an empty tomb. Hope begins to stir, and by the end of that day, Jesus is back among the disciples again. Has there ever been such intense happiness? Jesus looks ahead to that joy in verse 21, where he compares it to the experience of a woman giving birth. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Ask one of the mothers here today, Laura or Betsy, if Jesus' illustration is true to life. I'm sure they will confirm his words. The pain of childbirth gives way to sheer joy as a baby's first cries are heard. The disciples will have a similar shift from pain to joy when they meet with the risen Jesus. That illustration in verse 21 works on the surface level. It's a memorable comparison, but it also works on a deeper level. Think about it. Why do labor pains happen? Genesis chapter 3 tells us, it says, labor pains are one of the results of 
Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. God punished uh, the, the man by cursing his main area of activity at that time. Cursed is the ground because of you, God says. Through painful toil you will eat of it. And God similarly added affliction to the woman's main area of activity at that time, giving birth and raising children. God says to the woman in Genesis 3, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain. You will give birth to children. So labor pains are a consequence of humanity's rebellion against God at the start of history. They remind us of the fallenness of this world, the afflicted condition of this whole world. That means when Jesus likens his resurrection to a baby's arrival, bringing labor pains to an end, he's not just talking about the joyful relief experienced by those 11 disciples. He's also saying that his resurrection will serve as a glimpse of the world to come. The post-labor pains world. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits, meaning the first sample of a crop that shows what the rest of the crop will be like. A 20th century theologian named George E. Ladd puts it like this. Jesus' resurrection is an anticipation of the end. It is a piece of the future split off from the end and planted in history. I'll read that quote again. Jesus' resurrection is an anticipation of the end. It is a piece of the future split off from the end and planted in history. Putting it more simply, Christians know that things will end well for us because we see our future in the risen Lord Jesus. He's the first fruits of what is to come. There's joy for us as we witness our future in the resurrection of Jesus. That post-labor pains world. Let's move on to the third and final part of the sermon, the third time period that Jesus speaks of in this passage. The heading for this section is an hour is coming. An hour is coming. Please look down with me to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figures of speech. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. An hour is coming. At first, it's not altogether clear which hour Jesus has in view. The disciples seem to think that he's talking about the very hour they are currently in. They quote what Jesus says in verse 25 back to him later. They say in verse 29, See, now you are speaking plainly and are not using any figures of speech. They think the hour Jesus speaks of in verse 25 has already come. But the disciples are getting ahead of themselves. We can tell from verses 31 and 32 that Jesus thinks they're overconfident. He replies, do you now believe? 
Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. They are in a different hour, the hour of scattering, the hour of faithlessness. The hour Jesus has in mind in verse 25 is different. It hasn't already come. It's still in the future. On that day, Jesus says in verse 26, it's a different day, a different time period. If you were here last week, you might remember Jesus saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In other words, he, Jesus, has more to say to the disciples and he'll deliver that teaching by the Spirit. Jesus is saying something very similar in today's passage in verse 25. He has more to reveal to the disciples, but they're not yet ready to hear it. They still need figures of speech. They're not ready for plain spoken information. So Jesus is repeating in verse 25 that promise from last week's passage, which means he's looking ahead beyond his ascension into heaven to the time when the Spirit will deliver Jesus' teaching to these 11 disciples. I hope you're able to track with that explanation of verse 25. We do need to grasp which time period is in view in verses 25 through 28, that paragraph, because it's the time period we belong to. The teaching Jesus speaks of has now been delivered and it was set down for us in the pages of the New Testament. So we live after that initial revelation download. But aside from that, we are in the same epoch they were in, the same stretch of salvation history. It's known in the Bible as the last days. In the final sentence of the passage, Jesus sums up what life will be like during these last days that we are in. He says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Tribulation is the same word in the original language as the word translated anguish back in that labor pains verse. Verse 21, Jesus is saying life in the last days will sometimes feel like giving birth feels. I'm sure if we could speak with Ukrainian Christians right now, they would agree with that assessment as they huddle in bomb shelters or try to get used to life in a foreign country. I'm sure if we could speak with Christians in places where it's illegal to worship Jesus, they would also agree with his assessment. And even in our own city, which isn't war-torn, where we can worship Jesus freely, even here, we can still experience tribulation, anguish, chronic ill health, family members not walking with the Lord, career disappointments, unexpected injustice, we can probably all think of Christians suffering in one or more of those ways. Jesus doesn't say in verse 33, in the world you have health and prosperity. No, 
He says, in the world you have tribulation. But that brings us back to the end of verse 22. No one is going to take your joy away from you. For Christians, joy can be sustained in the midst of tribulation. Our joy can coexist with anguish. There are two things, according to this Bible passage, that will stir up our joy and keep it replenished. And we'll finish with these two things. The first is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that event in history. There is always joy-giving water in the well of Jesus' resurrection. It's a historical event backed up with persuasive evidence. It fulfilled multiple Old Testament prophecies and it speaks to us of the world to come and what we will be like in the world to come. Meditating on the resurrection is like seeing crocuses budding and smelling spring in the air. The resurrection tells us that our world will be changed, our bodies will be changed, and all our tears will be wiped away. Go to the resurrection to replenish your joy. Don't leave it caged up on Easter Sunday. It can bring you joy throughout the whole year. Jesus is alive. We love and worship a living person. It's a relationship we can enjoy now as well as in the future when he will return to live with us forever. In addition to the resurrection, today's passage also points to prayer as a means to joy. Jesus speaks about praying in his name in verses 23, 24, and 26. He doesn't mean we have to add the words in Jesus' name to every prayer, although there's nothing wrong with adding those words at the end of a prayer. What he means is that God the Father will hear your prayers if you come to him as a Christian, as someone who's trusting in Jesus for salvation and living to please Jesus with his powerful help. That is what it means to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. It's praying to him as a Christian. Jesus assures us in verse 27 that the Father loves us. And so we trust that he will answer our prayers lovingly in accordance with his good purposes, which are sometimes mysterious but they are good. Jesus says that asking and receiving in this way will bring us fullness of joy. Look at verse 24. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. God has arranged the universe and history so that good things happen when his people pray. It's a rhythm you can enter into, and it will bring you joy. Good things happen when God's people pray. One thing we can pray for is joy itself. King David prays in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy 
of my salvation. Well, let's bow our heads and pray to God the Father now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name as his followers, saved through his death and resurrection. We want to pray now the prayer that King David prayed. Father, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Amen.